Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, welcome once again to another exciting episode of Lost in Science, where there is too much science for your brain to handle. Well, almost, maybe just enough science. Stu, what are you going to excite us with today? Well, I've noticed that indoor plants are a big thing at the moment. It's very fashionable to have indoor plants in your house. But I thought I would talk to someone from the University of Melbourne, uh, Dr. Dominic Hess, who has been part of developing an app that tells people uh, which plants they should keep in their house because they actually can literally take toxic chemicals out of the air and keep your air clean. I can't, I can't wait to hear about this app. So, you download it. It's called yeah. the Plant Life Balance app. Is it Plant free? Life it's Balance. free. It's free. It's on Android and Apple when you can download wow. it. And get you it should also free. listen to we should also And listen to the yeah, story, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, as yeah, well. The story. Yeah, yeah. But also download the app. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Claire, how about you? Well, I'm going to be talking about a very um, exciting discovery in the world of the great apes. Um, maybe you've heard of this world. It's called Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah, I've heard <laughs> about that. It's, it's risen and it's had a war and maybe a dawn, though, as well. Okay, well, there's a new dawn and that is a new ape has been discovered. It's a new orangutan, but it's also very sad because it is both the newest member of the great ape family and also the most endangered member of the great ape family. So I'm going to talk all about that. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I have an amazing story. Um, apes are amazing, but I am going to be talking about... The, the ancient Egyptians, the pyramids, and how physicists have found a, a new chamber inside the pyramids using cosmic rays. So um, that is something to look forward to. Stay tuned for muons, orangutans, and... Houseplants! Everyone houseplants. loves a houseplant. Most of us spend a good deal of our time indoors, and while human beings evolved in the great outdoors, uh, sometimes our inside life can be a bit removed from nature. But I've got on the line with me Dr. Dominic Hez from the University of Melbourne, who is something of an expert in the area of people living inside and how we can make our our indoor life uh, a little bit more healthy. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I guess I sort of, I have a background in horticulture, but I think some people see houseplants as a bit uh, daggy and maybe a bit of a hangover from the 1970s. Would that be, would that be a fairly common sort of way to look at houseplants? People I've been speaking to haven't had so much that uh, back to the 70s feel about it, but more they're messy, they collect dust, I killed them, so I don't want to look after them kind of response, um, rather than the, um, they're daggy. Um, and so, yes, this research was very much to show the benefits of it so people have a, an alternative narrative other than the 70s look. I guess one of the other things too is that a lot more people are living in houses where they have 
less outdoor space. And the idea of having any plants at all means they probably have to start looking at putting them indoors. Yes, indoors and balconies, uh, particularly as we're starting to shift to, as you said, smaller spaces, but also particularly apartments where you might have a view to other buildings as opposed to nature. And it's really critical for those uh, places to have uh, some connection to nature. Uh, and pot plants is a perfect way of doing that because it not just gives you the well-being benefits of um, being connected to nature, but it also cleans the air up. So how, how, how effective are houseplants at cleaning the air inside buildings? They're surprisingly effective. Um, one plant will make um, a big difference in a, a medium-sized plant in a medium-sized room. will improve the air quality by 25%. So it makes quite a big difference. And that's because the, um, the toxins in the air aren't that, you know, it's not like your air is saturated with toxins. They're, there's only a, a low concentration of them. And so one plant will make a big difference to taking up those toxins and improving the air quality. What, what sort of things are the plants absorbing out of the air that would be bad for us to breathe in? So one of the main things is volatile organic compounds called VOCs, and there are a variety of those, but one of the most dangerous is formaldehyde. Um, and um, different uh, VOCs have different chemical makeup, so plants will absorb them all differently. But yes, formaldehyde, benzene, and a whole bunch of other um, short-chained oils are what um, our plants will absorb through their stomata. So the stomata are the little things in the leaves that take in the air and um, take in, breathe for the plant. And as they breathe, they take in small dust particles as well as those VOCs. They get bound up in the plant and don't don't get gassed out again. That's right. That's right. Um, and uh, which is why you know a real life plant is so important as opposed to a plastic one, although the plastic one might survive better depending on how green your thumb is. But the other interesting bit that our research found was that it's actually the pot size that makes a big difference to how well your plant functions in removing those toxins. So just like we have uh, good bacteria in our gut that help with our digestion of nutrients and so forth, for a plant, those good bacteria are around the roots. And so um, the more, the bigger the pot, the healthier the soil, the better that bacteria is around and in the roots and the better the plant actually is dealing with and metabolising um, those volatile organic compounds. So just on the volatile organic compounds, where, do, where are they actually coming from? How are they getting into the house to begin with? So they're your, um, you know, your, your petrol smell at a petrol station or your uh, new car smell when you jump into a car you've just bought from the showroom or that smell that you smell with the new couch you've just bought or um, uh, they come in sort of compressed timbers like MDF, so a lot of our TV cabinets and so forth um, will give off VOCs. They're particularly evident the first six months of a new building. So, you know, we glue our carpets generally to the, to the ground and a lot, a lot of those glues give off these VOCs. We paint our homes. Now, if you're not using a water-based paint, then you're adding more VOCs as the paint dries. But that's particularly important to get rid of those um, VOCs in the first six months of a new car or a new home um, or when you've bought a new piece of furniture. And a lot of those um, smells aren't as detectable as um, petrol smell at a petrol station, um, but they are definitely there and they're not good for your health. And so that's where plants can help remove those. The one thing that's probably on everyone's minds is, do some plants do this better than others? And what's the best plant they could possibly get for their house to get rid of these VOCs? 
Yeah, so um, the plants that are within the app are what we call high removalists. So um, they have a higher level of stomata um, and there's the stomata within the leaves that um, remove uh, the VOCs. So just playing around with the app, seeing which plants work for you for your type of look uh, will help with that removal. Um, for the easy to look after plants, um, I'd go for a peace lily or um, a, a mother-in-law's tongue or um, a Boston fern or some of those sorts of plants. And um, for the well-being aspect, so not the air quality, but the well-being aspect, um, you'd get a, a mixture of plants. So ideally five or more plants for the medium-sized room will really give you that well-being benefit. Um, because our minds evolved in nature as you started the program with, and so it's more relaxed when it is around nature. And in nature, things aren't all a monoculture. They are a complex system. And so doing that by having different plants with different colours and textures and leaf sizes and so forth will help with that relaxing of the brain. It's particularly important for kids. So I think, um, you know, kids in apartments, that's particularly important. And there's a look around, um, a kid-friendly look that people can choose in the app. And so, yes, the research is particularly strong around the benefit of, uh, of kids and pot plants. Is there any way to stop them eating the potting mix? <laughs> <laughs> um, the research does start from year six up. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so slightly older children, possibly. Yes, slightly older children or, or put pot plants high enough so that little hands don't get into them. Fantastic. And where can people, how can people track down the app so they can have a play with it themselves? Yeah, so the app's free. Um, you can download it uh, from any app store for any type of phone. Um, it was um, funded by Hort Innovation and the Nursery and Garden Industry Australia, and it was part of the 2020 program. So it actually came from the community saying, how do we improve the number of plants in our lives by 20% by 2020? And they suggested making the science more accessible, which is what the app tries to do. And as I said, the app's free. Um, there's a Facebook site if people have um, feedback, and if they go to the website, they can download the simple science behind um, the app. Great. Well, I can I can certainly put a link up on, on, our, uh, on our podcast with that... Uh to, to link to that website. So, um, but yeah, fantastic. I think I'm going to go out and try and buy some houseplants. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> th- thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Dr. Hess. My pleasure. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. Chris, have you heard the very exciting news that there is a new ape in town? In town? In this town? <laughs> no, it isn't in this town. In the world. There is a new ape in the world. A new orangutan has been described. I mean, it's been in existence for a long time, but in terms of human discovery and description, it's new. Okay, so I'm assuming that this ape, as you said, was around before. And people, like, it's not like some sort of, we're not talking Bigfoot here. It has an, no, it's an orangutan. So why? what makes it different? Why is this suddenly a new ape? What's, okay, well, What's special about this orangutan? It is quite different to the other orangutans, and I'll talk about that in, in a minute, but I do want to give you a pop quiz before you start asking me oh, yeah, questions. Sure, sure. Can you name the six other non, non-human apes? Um, the, the pongids or are they included? 
Yes. Was, the, yeah. Well, there's like there's um, gorillas, obviously. Yep, yep. So there are two types of gorillas, eastern and western gorillas. Okay, there are chimpanzees. Very good. There are bonobos. Oh, excellent. Uh, and then orangutans. Yes, so there's the Sumatran orangutan who um, lives on the island of Sumatra. Yep. And then the Bornean orangutan who okay. lives on the island of Borneo, yes. surprisingly enough. Yep. So our new orangutan is the... Tapanuli orangutan. And yeah, for more formal occasions, you might want to refer to him or her as Pongo tapanuliensis. For formal occasions, Say that again. Pongo tapanuliensis. That is a very poetic name. It is nice, isn't it? So these frizzy haired apes live in high elevation Sumatran forest. Frizzy? Yeah, so they're frizzy as opposed to the long-haired apes. So the other Sumatran oh. apes, I think, are long-haired and the Bornean apes are frizzy. Anyway, so they live in a forest called Batang Toru, which is an area located south of where the other Sumatran orangutans live. Anyway, it's great that we found this new species, but it also happens, you know, we found it and now we have also classified it as the most endangered of the great apes in the world. Sounds like we're just setting ourselves some challenges. I, well, yeah. I mean, it's what humans love to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, stuff things up, set Look, challenges. I have a question about this new orangutan. The thing that, that I really want to know about it, does it have a flange? <laughs> I was really hoping you would ask me that question. Uh, the males do have flanges. Excellent. Well, yeah. for people who haven't don't know what a flange is, I mean, I'm sure everyone does, but just for, you know. Orangutan flanges are the um, fleshy, melon-like protrusions on the side of certain male orangutan faces. All right. So, yes, they do have flanges. Um, yeah. So, your question before, how do we know yeah. that these are a different species? Well, it is a combination of things. The scientists have done a lot of comparison between bone structures and the overall morphology or how the orangutans look. And then they also did a DNA comparison. So for people who might be thinking, where did they get the bones um, to do the analysis, given that it is the most endangered ape in the world now? Um, well, this has been one of the challenges for the research scientists. So the scientists have had a really good hunch that this species has existed for around 20 years, um, but they've not been able to prove it morphologically until they found a specimen okay. and they could do some bone comparisons. And in the meantime, while, you know, the last 20 years, while this has all been happening, um, huge development's been going on in Indonesia and, you know, you've got palm oil plantations and um, geothermal uh, energy plants and all sorts of different development happening on the island of Sumatra. So, so it's really habitat loss is like the usual story. With habitat white, loss, yeah. habitat fragmentation. Ah. So, you know, the populations become isolated from one another and then can't cross those um, geographic boundaries and then, yep. you know, become lost through 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 that. Um, anyway, a breakthrough happened four years ago in 2013 when the researchers found parts of a skeleton belonging to a male orangutan um, that had been killed by locals in the, in the Batang Toru forest. So just as a side note here, mm -hmm. the first specimen of a new species, do you know what that's called? The specimen... Uh, is, is that the type specimen? It's the type specimen or the holotype. Oh. Yeah. So there is a holotype for every described species in the world and they are based at different museums. Yeah. Just, yeah, 
for your taxonomic reference. Uh, anyway, so they then had this holotype. So the scientists then scoured museums around the world for skulls of similarly aged males because you need to be able to compare like and like. So they found 30 skulls of the other Sumatran male orangutan. The other species. The other species on Sumatra um, and compared them and found quite a few significant physical differences between the male um, Tapanuli orangutan and the other Sumatran orangutans, including the size of the skull, um, the jaw and some major um, differences between the teeth. And then on the outside, we talked a bit about um, the flanges being slightly different, but still there. Um, Also, they have smaller heads. We talked about them being a bit more frizzy. Yep. They are apparently a bit more cinnamon coloured. What about flavoured? We're not going to go there, Chris. Okay, okay. Okay. So they're they're, they're the pumpkin spice. They are the the pumpkin spice of the orangutan world. And interestingly, something that's noted in in the article is that unlike other orangutans, the females have beards. Isn't that great? I love that. It's like it's noted down. It's like, and I'm trying to fi- picture an orangutan beard, but I'll, I'll take their word for it. <laughs> uh, they also vocalize a little bit differently to the other Sumatran orangutan. Um, so these internal and external differences were mounting, So, and the scientists had their holotype. So from there, the researchers began the largest genomic study of wild orangutans, and um, they sequenced the genome of 37 orangutans living in Sumatra and Borneo and found that um, they come from three very distinct evolutionary lineages. And another surprise is the Tapanuli group is actually the oldest lineage and is more related to the Bornean orangutan than it is to the one in the north of Sumatra, so the one that it lives on the same island with. So the researchers suggest that several million years ago, orangutans migrated from South Asia um, to an area that's um, now called Lake Toba in Sumatra. Um, And then from there, two groups split. Oh, I see. um, And one went north to become the Sumatran orangutan. And then from the southern group, um, the two groups split again. One went to Borneo and one stayed put. But they have been geographically isolated from the other Sumatran um, orangutans for, I think, around 15,000 years. Anyway, um, the most distressing part of this story is obviously that they are now the most endangered great ape species and there's only 800 suspected left in the wild. And one of the biggest issues the researchers are now realising is that there are only 800 and they're in three very distinct pockets of habitat. So they're in three parts of the forest and these pockets are separated by non-protected areas and areas that are earmarked for development. So for survival to be an option for this you know, new species of Abe, the three areas really need to be reconnected via forest corridors, which they haven't and, you know, aren't planning on doing it yet. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, there's just a huge amount of development in the region, including a planned hydroelectric dam right smack bam in the middle of the conservation area. So action needs to happen now to protect the species. Yep. And if anyone is interested, then I would very much recommend you go on to SumatraOrangutan.org for the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Group, um, and they have a lot of information about the conservation efforts for this new species so, of ape. So SumatraOrangutan.org. SumatraOrangutan.org.
All right, so we've heard about wild new ape men of the forest. It's an interesting story, Claire. Yeah. But I am going to I am going to raise the bar with a tale of archaeologists discovering a secret room in the Great Pyramid of Giza using cosmic rays leading to the activation of the Crown of Horus and King <laughs> Khufu rising from the dead to rampage to the new age of pharaohs and possibly a new Tom Cruise movie. Look, just like the fact that you need to make up all this stuff for your story suggests to me that you're feeling a little bit inadequate about your story. I'm, I'm not. Look, this story actually does involve pyramids <laughs> and cosmic rays. However, does it involve no, Khufu? No, yeah, no cosmically powered mummies, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> However. However. Not that, should, we know, that we know of. You should, um, you should write a script. I don't want to rule that completely. I'm pretty sure th- there is now, there a new was a, mummy there was a, movie. It came out last year. It bombed. I wonder why. Yeah, well, because it didn't have cosmic rays in it. Yeah. in it. <laughs> no, that was like <laughs> we won't go into that. I mean, um, no. So what this is is researchers from a team called Scan Pyramids using archaeologists and physicists from Egypt, Japan, and France. They have used muons from cosmic rays. To and muons. 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 Muons to find, as I said, a previously unknown chamber in the Great Pyramid of Giza, also known as the Pyramid of Khufu, after the Pharaoh. Wow. Khufu. Okay. So a few questions probably come to mind. Yeah. What are muons? Well, muons, they are, they are particles that come from cosmic rays. Okay. Now, they're not actually – this is the interesting thing. So you're probably wondering, what is a cosmic ray? Well, a little bit. And how can we harness the, the energy of a cosmic ray? Yeah. And, and who, where can I get a cosmic ray gun? Well, you can't. <laughs> so cosmic rays well, are basically – Well, got one. <laughs> no, see, this is interesting. So they, they didn't actually create cosmic rays. They didn't have a cosmic ray gun. Okay. They, they're naturally occurring cosmic rays. So these muons, they are all around us. There are about 10,000 muons hit every square meter of the Earth's surface every minute. So they're all around us. And what's happening essentially is they are produced in the upper atmosphere by high-energy particles from outer space. So what happens is things like protons or helium nuclei that are believed to be mostly emitted by supernovas. They you know, fly through space. They're flying out from supernovas. They fly through space at close to the speed of light. And when they hit our atmosphere, it's like a like your particle accelerator you get at, at, um, at CERN. Um, so they hit, out, hit particles in atmosphere and then they explode in this big shower of new particles that they create. And among those new particles they create are muons. So this is real. This is real. So these high-energy particles basically are producing muons in our upper atmosphere and they're showering down on the Earth. So they, they're showering, but they're actually moving quite fast themselves as well. Now, a muon is basically it's, – uh, it's essentially a heavy electron. It's a heavier version of the electron. It's Because it's a heavy version of the electron, it's not a normal particle to see around. It does decay, but because it's moving close to the speed of light – it, um, due to time dilation effects, it lasts a fair long time, and it's quite good at going through matter, better than things like X-rays and stuff. So it's good for taking, for seeing through things like rock and tombs. Um, and is this, is this a new approach to being able to um, see through things like rock and tombs? <laughs> it's well, it's. It's been developing over the last 50 years or so. In fact, the very first use of this technique was in Australia. This is a no, Australian invention. Really? No, really? it was. So it was this snowy... God, CSIRO taking credit for that one the too. The snowy mountain scheme 
No. It was. It was. So <laughs> they were building a tunnel and this um, physicist, E.P. George, this is 1954, he wanted to measure the thickness of the rock above the tunnel, see how much rock was above this tunnel. And so he used a Geiger counter uh, to detect the, the muons that were coming through the rock. And he's able to get a rough measure of the thickness of the rock. Uh, he couldn't get a good image of it because he just had like a Geiger counter. But that was the first use of this technique. And do we know if, he's, if it was correct? The amount of rock? Yeah, he was. It was. Yeah, he's, he's, apparently, he successfully matched the result from core samples. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. This new technique is, well, it doesn't sound much more high-tech, but it is more high-tech. What they do is they use nuclear emulsion. Actually, that does sound high-tech. I'll mm. take that back. But it's basically like kind of a photographic plate that muons, like when muons hit it, they leave a little track in it. Basically, it's being charged particles, a little track in this plate. And so what you do is you look at it under a microscope and you can see the tracks. You can see what direction they're coming from and you can work out, calculate back what it went through. Um, it takes a while because when you're going through rock as thick as the pyramid, that um, about only about 1% of the muons get through. So they kind of have to leave it for a couple of months. And, and where was the plate? In the Queen's Chamber. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a couple other corridors around. So oh, they had a few plates in the Queen's Chamber and then some corridors, and that was the main measurement. Um, and then what they did is they saw, basically, you could see the muons coming through, and then they found a, what do they call it? An unexpected muon excess region. Right. Which indicated there was a hole okay. in the rock somewhere. Yeah, yeah. They also had some because other. Because otherwise it would have been just full up with rock and yeah. the muons wouldn't have been able to get through. They also had um, one of the other collaborators in the team had different kind of muon detectors, uh, some electronic detectors in their tunnels as well to, to verify the measurements. And outside they set up what they called muon telescopes, which essentially looked at muons going straight through the pyramid. Right. So they got like three different kind of sets of instruments and they all kind of validated each other to find this. Muon excess. Muon excess. <laughs> 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 and yeah, and that's what they did. They found that there was yes, it is this bit above, I think above the the grand gallery. I think it is. If you know your um your layout of your pyramid, they don't actually know what it is. Um, oh, surely there's been some wild speculation on the internet, though. Oh, I'm sure there has. Um, they don't really know. Um, Maybe it's just the janitor's closet. Well, one theory is because the it's above the grand gallery, which is kind of the one big hallway, that it maybe was just a gap there so you didn't have a lot of weight above the bit where people are going to be walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one theory. Um, but it could be another another chamber with stuff in there. They're not going to um, they don't intend to to drill and send people in, but they are trying to. Um, develop tiny flying robots that can oh, get to the gaps. Great. So we have like we have muon excess, we have cosmic rays, we have nuclear emulsions, and we have tiny flying robots to go in. <laughs> this is the future. This is the future. Look, yeah, no, this is what archaeology is like. So I okay, so I have I have a friend who's an archaeologist. Yeah. And many years ago, uh, when she was studying, she wanted to go to this conference or this dinner. I went along, and it was all physicists there. It was great. Really? Yeah, because basically, this is what you know. A this is a career is about, session on Lost in Science it is, as well. You know, if you want to be an archaeologist, maybe you should study physics. You need instead. to study physics. But so, yeah, so no, this is a this is a this is a technique. It's used for lots of other things as well. It's been used to um, uh, on other pyramids. They've used it on Mexican pyramids as well, um, and they also use it to look at, at uh, nuclear power plants. So the Fukushima plant, you know, it's a bit hard hard to get close to it. Use a muon detector, a bit of distance away, you can see what's going on inside. So yeah, it's it's useful technology, and it can. Revived the undead mummies from four and a half thousand years ago. So that's pretty cool.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.